Hello, good afternoon, and very much looking forward to seeing you in person on Sunday. Uh, this evening we come to our third look at revival, and uh, as I said, this is a parallel series to our paused series in 1 Corinthians, come back to that at some point next year. But however, we're coming to like how revival comes, and I'll do it in various parts. Tonight, t- tonight we'll be looking at part one, and just two verses from Isaiah 66. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Isaiah, Prophet Isaiah 66. We'll just read the first two verses. Um, so Isaiah 66, and we'll read verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And may the Lord bless this reading of his holy word. So how revival comes. We began two weeks ago by defining revival as a season of extraordinary blessing, the blessing of the Holy Spirit, resting on the ordinary means of grace, especially the word of God preached And the prayers of the Lord's people leading to renewal, revitalization in the church and typically also resulting in many conversions to faith to Jesus in the wider community. Last time we considered those those hindrances to revival, looking at the seven letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And we noticed six hindrances in particular, namely backsliding, the paralysis of fear the problem of error, the blindness of presumption, too much regard for weakness and powerlessness, a misplaced faith in money and affluence, and the general self-reliance that tends to go along with it. Our focus tonight and for the next couple of weeks, both either side of, either side of Christmas, is on how revival comes what it looks like and what it involves when it breaks into our lives and into the life of the church. Just in the hope that as we consider it together, we might be awakened ourselves and begin to long for it and to seek the Lord's face anew, that perhaps he might do it again. Clearly in our hearts, but also among us. So in the last chapter of Isaiah, The prophet Isaiah sees with prophetic vision the exiles who'd been taken away, eventually now returning. They'd come back to the land, which happens in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, from their Babylonian captivity to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild and restore the temple. And if you were to look at Ezra, Nehemiah, or Haggai or Zechariah, whose ministries were contemporary with Ezra and Nehemiah, you would see that the rebuilding of the temple, the restoration of the worship of the Lord God, according to the law of Moses, was something to which the returning exiles had been called. God called them to it. It pleased the Lord greatly. However, as Isaiah anticipates that, He nevertheless has a word of warning and a word of encouragement for the returning exiles. 
And I just simply want to look, think about each of those in turn tonight from Isaiah 66 verses 1 and 2. First, in verses 1 and 2, and then in actually in that verse 3, Isaiah speaks about the danger of superficial religion. And then in the second half of verse 2, he highlights the dynamics of spiritual life. So there's those two points, the word of warning and the word of encouragement. The danger, first of all, of superficial religion and then the dynamics of spiritual life. That's the burden of his message in these two verses. So let's have a look at a testimony. There had been widespread nominalism and indifference amongst the people of Northampton, Massachusetts in the United States in the years leading up to 1734. I'll quote from Jonathan Edwards. They came to meeting from one Sabbath to another and hear God's word. But all that can be said to them won't awaken them, won't persuade them to take pains that they may be saved. Often Jonathan Edwards is worried that his congregation were not listening at all. I quote from Edwards, they're gazing about the assembling mind in this or another person that's there. All they're thinking about, about oh, sorry, all they're thinking of is their worldly business. But everything changed in 1734. Suddenly there was a new attentiveness, a deep spiritual seriousness under the word of God spread throughout the community. Jonathan Edwards said a great and earnest concern about the great things of religion and the eternal world. Many people were converted and in fact Edwards goes on to say, I hope that more than 300 souls were savingly brought home to Christ in this town in the space of half a year. Those of our young people that are on other accounts most likely and consider considerable are mostly, as I hope, truly pious and leading persons in the way of religion. Those that were formerly looser young persons are generally, to all appearances, become true lovers of God in Christ and spiritual in their dispositions. And I hope that by far the greater part of persons in this town above 16 years of age are such as to have a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So Northampton then was... 200 families, about a 1,000 people. Edwards says 300 were converted in six months. And one of the distinguishing marks of this awakening was a trembling, a new trembling under the word of God. A quote from Jonathan Edwards again. People had their consciences smitten and awakened and went home with wounded hearts and with those impressions that never wore off until they had hopefully saving issue. So up until this point, everyone was in church. The whole community went to church together. They were all engaged in the regular business of worship and church life. But when revival came, what had been formal, external, perfunctory, cold, changed. They had gone about their business as if Christianity was just a matter of outward duty. But as the Holy Spirit of Almighty God began to work in them through his word, they came to feel its power and its force. And they discovered that authentic Christianity is a thing of the heart. And in our passage, 
the prophet Isaiah sees the people of Judah returned at last to Jerusalem and they're engaged together in the rebuilding of the temple. They resume the worship of God and they start once again to offer sacrifices that Moses had commanded in the law. But as Isaiah contemplates the scene, he is gripped by a major concern. He is he is warning he is afraid that the people will fall into the same kind of cold external adherence and formality in religion that Jonathan Edwards lamented about in his community before revival came that it would look good it sounded it sounded right but it doesn't come from the heart doesn't the heart's been unaffected so the first place, that danger of superficial religion. The question that God asks of the people in verse 1, what is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? You see, the people have set about the great task of re rebuilding the temple, but they've forgotten that while God was pleased to make his presence particularly known there during the old covenant age, he couldn't be contained by any temple made with human hands. When Solomon dedicated the first temple, even while he prayed for God's name, his presence to fill the sanctuary, he said, and I read from 1 Kings 8, 27, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. God doesn't reside in buildings. The people of God are the temple of God in the new covenant era. God doesn't dwell in buildings. The people really are thinking like the pagans among whom they've been living during the exile. Because the pagans thought their gods were localised, reduced to temples, inhabiting shrines that their hands had made. So the prophet Isaiah exposes for us the root, the foundation of spiritual superficial, of superficial religion and mediocrity. Superficial religion starts by taming God. We shrink God down to our size. We think of God not on his otherness, his terms, as the transcendent Lord God, but in terms of the assumptions and the convictions of the pagan world around us. Apparently, the people needed to be reminded of two truths about God in particular. Verse 1, heaven is my throne and my, the earth is my footstool. Verse 2, all these things my hand has made and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. They'd, they had forgotten the divine immensity. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. He is everywhere present. When our satellites pass out of our solar system on the incredible voyages of exploration, they will never reach a place they cannot reach a place where god is not already present there is no ocean too deep no darkness too dark no mountain too high there is nowhere where god is not you see god is not just a bigger version of us the difference between us and god is not just a difference of degree He's not just a few rungs further up the ladder of being, as it were, the same ladder that we ourselves occupy. He is different in kind. He belong, belongs in a category of one of his own. 
sui generis. There is none like God. And it seems the people had forgotten that. Have we? Have you? Have you begun to tame God? Has God ceased to be vast, immense, transcendent, high and lifted up? Has God instead just become part of your armory, your worldly religious accessory? A spiritual helper whose main job is to keep you comfortable when life gets tough. But secondly, they'd also not only forgotten the divine immensity, but the divine sovereignty. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. He is a king who reigns, presides over all things. He is creator God. All these things my hands have made. And he is the God of providence. He reigns as the God of providence. The earth is his footstool. The earth submits to his decree and finds its proper place under his royal dominion. When we tame God, we are dethroning him in our hearts and in our thinking. And we do it, of course, so that we can instead enthrone us. We think that what God wants from us is just good behaviour. We think that if we give him a little of what he's looking for, then he is obligated in return to provide for us what we want, what we think we need. And we think we deserve happiness, contentment, prosperity, quid pro quo. I input good behaviour, out comes happiness. Some say God exists, but he has nothing to do with this world. We forget about him until a crisis comes. And then we ring his bell frantically like as if God was a cosmic butler, hoping he will come and take away the the problems and ease us amidst our various troubles. And then we ignore him all over again. The people of Isaiah's day, certainly one that Isaiah issues this challenge to, have reduced God. They've tamed God. They were happy to work, to give, to build, to perform. They were busy. In verse 3, of this chapter, Isaiah says that they were even engaged in the ritual sacrifices that Moses Moses prescribed in the worship that God requires in the law of Moses. But look at how God views their worship. Isaiah 66 verse 3, he who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man, he who sacrifices a lamb, like one who breaks a dog's neck, he who presents a grain offering, like one who offers pig's blood, he who makes a memorial offering of frankincense, like one who blesses an idol. How does God feel about their ritual offerings? He's appalled by the outwardly correct worship. Has it ever occurred to you that God might not be pleased at outwardly correct worship? He says their sacrifice of an ox is as abominable as murder. The offering of a lamb, no better than killing a dog, gruesome ugly, without value. You see, here is the indictment. It's possible to be diligent in the outward duties of religion, to be consistent and exacting and disciplined in fulfilling everything Scripture says we ought to do externally in our worship, and yet for God to view our worship as an abomination in his sight. But you see, when revival comes, the people of God are shaken out of their formalism, their legalism. Nominal Christians are awakened to their spiritual danger. 
a new horror at the thought of worship with the lips that never touches the hearts begins to dawn on us. So we need to be interrogating our hearts and asking ourselves, how does God view my busyness in Christian things? Am I just busy working on building the temple, offering my sacrifices, while all the time belittling God, reducing God to safe, manageable proportions? No longer the God, Lord God and King who rules over me, but reduced to a religious accessory, like a new pair of shoes whose main function in my life is to make my life a little bit more comfortable. The crucial question is not how we feel about worship. It isn't. It is, what does God think about worship, about your worship and mine? It is the vital question to which our passage calls us and asks us to examine our hearts with respect to it. That's the indictment, an expose of superficial religion. God hates it. Remember the church in Laodicea? Lukewarm, mediocre. Jesus said, I will spew you from my mouth. But notice the exhortation and encouragement of verse 2, Isaiah 66, verse 2. This is what revived Christianity looks like. This is what happens when revival comes. God asks, what is the house that you should build for me? What is the place of my rest? God, not impressed by our efforts to contain him, carry favour with him, reduce him to manageable proportions. But to this one I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Notice the promise, but this, this is the one to whom I will look. God has respect for this. His face is turned toward this. His face is turned away from those who may be engaged in very formal acts of worship, where outwardly there is probably nothing to distinguish one from another. They're busy building the temple together, but his face is turned from one toward another. What does it mean to have God's face turned towards you? Well, it's an echo of the benediction of Aaron in Numbers 6.24. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. It is a way of talking about the fundamental blessing of fellowship and communion with the living God. His face is turned toward us in love, pleasure, fatherly delight. The benediction of his smile smiles upon his people. His eye rests with a parent's constant care upon us. It speaks of intimacy, about the bonds of family. He is our father. We are his adopted sons and daughters, the apple of his eye, the delight of his heart. And to whom is this blessing given? According to our text, notice the three marks of grace listed in the second part of verse 2. First of all, Isaiah says this person is humble. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble. The word sometimes means poor in the sense of material destitution. The poverty in view, in, in view is spiritual in character. And it's what Jesus talked about on the Sermon of the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It's expressed in Paul's realisation that in my flesh dwells no good thing. And it's the discovery that there are no resources of strength or wisdom, no riches of personal charisma or natural gifts that we may possess. No accomplishments, no plaudits and awards to which we can appeal that will leverage from God his saving favour and blessing. Jeremiah 9, 23. 
Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. When revival comes and God by his spirit blesses his word, one of the great evidences of it is a dawning conviction of our own deep poverty of spirit. What are you boasting in? Has God humbled you and brought you to see at last the depth of your spiritual poverty so that you can say, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his cross, his death and resurrection. Revival has come when we've given up our own self-confidence before God, our boasting, our sense that our riches ground our security in the world. That is actually when the light of the face of God begins to shine on his people anew. The second mark of grace, the one to whom God looks has a contrite heart. Do you see that in the, in the second half of verse 2? But this is the one to whom I will look, who is contrite in spirit. The word translated contrite is used in 2 Samuel 4 verse 4. 2 Samuel 4 verse 4, for example, to describe Mephibosheth who is a cripple. That is the language of the text. In fact, in every other instance in the Old Testament scriptures, it is used to mean physical brokenness. But here, it is a broken and contrite spirit. In a passage similar in tone and emphasis to Psalm 51 verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. We live in a day that privileges a jaunty, upbeat carefree attitude all the time we get impatient with anything else but Jesus says blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted and he's not talking about the mourning of the loss of a loved one he's talking about a spiritual mourning the posture of the heart that should characterize every true believer a contrite and broken spirit and we need to understand that Christian joy and contrition of heart are not opposed Having a contrite heart is not a problem from which to be delivered by Christian joy. It is not that you're contrite at the beginning and then you are delivered from that forever. No, the things go together in the same heart every day of the true believer. So when you look at yourself in the light of the holiness of God, you are grieved and you are contrite and repentant and broken over the remaining corruption that so offends your father. But then when you look at his son, the Lord Jesus Christ and the full provision for sin that God has made in his, his obedience and blood. Despite your sin, your heart is ignited, lifted up with joy and gratitude because there you know is full atonement and perfect forgiveness. Do you have a contrite spirit? Does your heart break over the reality of your remaining sin? Or do you look at your sin and offer a quick shrug and muttered apology? And then move right along without a second thought. That is not repentance. It is not contrition. Look at the cross. See the enormity of sin and all its horror that requires such a sacrifice to make you clean. Look at the throne of God and the thrice holy Lord who reigns there. Before whose gaze you live every moment of every day. Think of the spirit of God, the holy one who inhabits your believing heart whom you so grieve by your sin and let your heart break in contrition in genuine grief. 
A contrite heart is not a problem. It is the posture of a believer with regard to themselves. And it's characteristic of authentic spiritual life. And notice the third mark of grace, the instrument and anchor of the others in verse 2. But this is the one to whom I will look who trembles at my word. I fear many have become inured to the word of God. They yawn their way through sermons. They criticise Bible teaching as boring, as lecturing. Bibles are closed throughout the week. And there is an impatience when, when Christian friends or family bring scripture into the conversation. And that indifference to the voice of God, that boredom with, with the preaching of God's word is one of the most telling and obvious marks of spiritual mediocrity, if not spiritual death. And it is the greatest proof of our need for revival. You see, revival is marked by a renewed trembling at the word of God. One Sunday, Robert Bruce preached in Edinburgh. King James I was gossiping noisily with his courtiers in the, on the balcony. And every time Bruce was interrupted, he stopped his sermon and the king stopped gossiping. When Robert Bruce began to preach again, the gossip resumed until Bruce stopped completely. And after, a, I guess, a pregnant pause, he declared boldly, the lion of the tribe of Judah is now roaring in the voice of his gospel and it behoves all the petty kings of the earth to keep silent. I'd have loved to have been there. The God whose throne is heaven, whose footstool is the earth, is addressing you. His law directs your steps. His gospel has your name on it. His warnings are for your correction. His promises are held for your comfort. So will you shrug, yawn, criticise? Just bored with the, old, with the same old preaching of the word. Or will you tremble in holy awe that God would stoop to speak to you in his holy word? Well, as we close this, up, this evening, let us remember that we're not in the same position that the people Isaiah addressed found themselves in. There is no longer a temple for us on which we focus our religious duty because Jesus has come. He has tabernacled among us, John 1 tells us. In his own body, he has fulfilled the purpose of the temple, the dwelling place of God with men. Jesus is the meeting place in which we may come to commune with the living God. And we no longer offer bloody ritual sacrifices, ox and lambs. Because the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world has shed his blood at Calvary and brought every Old Testament ritual offering to its fulfilment. And all that simply means our privileges are so much greater, our blessings so much sweeter, our access to God so much fuller. Our side of the gospel of grace, the love of God, the provision he has made for us in his son so much clearer. And that in turn means that we have even less excuse for a formal, cold, bored, superficial religion and just empty surface worship. Just going through the motions as the people in Isaiah's day did. We have a saviour, the God who reigns from the throne of heaven, whose earth, for whom earth is his footstool, has himself come. He has come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, that we might become rich in him. He humbled himself. He came with a gentle and lowly heart, that everyone who is contrite in spirit might find 
rest for their souls in him. Authentic Christianity, revived Christianity is what we've been considering. When we talk of revival, it is the renewal of the real thing, of authentic Christianity. And it starts with a humble spirit, a contrite heart and a trembling at the word of God. May God do that work once again amongst us for his glory.